The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. I'd had four hours of freedom, and now I felt empty. I had to start over. I had worked very hard to adapt to prison and to accept the limited life that was imprisonment. Through it all, the indictment, the pleas, sentencing, entry into prison, search of myself, my locker, no privacy, I had somehow endured and survived. I had even become stronger and a better person, I told myself. Oh, every step had thrown me and thrown me hard, but nothing, nothing was like this. That's Jim Blackburn in his book, Flame Out. Welcome, murder bookies, to our bonus episode that stems from A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris. This is the story of Jim Blackburn. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy. Welcome, Murder Bookies. Hi, I'm Jill going solo today. For those of you who are just turning in, we are a real, true-life book club turned podcast. While Tara and I do the heavy lifting, we encourage you to read along with us. We like to summarize the author's story of each book we pull off our murder shelf. Psst. Okay, guys, we are currently reading Lost Girls by Robert Coker. Now, this is a special bonus episode, a spinoff of a trilogy we did on A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris on the Jeffrey McDonald triple homicide that left his wife, Colette, and two little daughters, Kimberly and Kristen, murdered back in 1971 in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Jeff lost, and he remains in prison today. During episodes 21 and 22, we met a huge number of attorneys including the lead prosecutor in this case, James Leslie Blackburn, will be the focus of this story. A successful attorney, husband, and father, and the McDonald case where he achieved his fame. Let's not sell Blackburn short. He did an amazing job working for the U.S. Department of Justice for 20 years and later in private practice. Well, kinda. All right, we do have a true crime story to tell. First, I have to ask, who is Jim L. Blackburn? Well, to begin, he was born to Dr. J. Glenn and Margaret Blackburn in Lumberton, North Carolina on September 12, 1944. He won a debating championship in his junior year and then graduated from Reynolds High School in Winston-Salem. The son of a Baptist minister who was the chaplain at Wake Forest College, later university, Jim graduated from Wake with a B.A. in political science and he went on to attend law school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, earning his law degree in 1969. While at Chapel Hill, he met the woman he'd married, Marshall Alita Kanata, in 1967, and they have two children, Jeffrey and Stacy. In 1975, Jim got to work, beginning to advise multiple state agencies. So, for example, he was the director of the Consumer Protection Division, In an article from the Raleigh News and Observer, 
Jim gave consumers advice on rebates. We should comparison shop because all may not be as good as it appears. Because if the shop raises the cost of a product prior to issuing the rebate, then it's really not going to be a savings. So always do the research before rebating, advises Jim Blackburn. Sound advice even today. So make a note of that one. So while in law school, Jim meets his mentor, who's going to prove to be a very critical ally, then North Carolina Attorney General Robert B. Morgan, who's going to put in a good word for him. Jim gets hired as the Assistant Attorney General with the North Carolina Justice Department. Jim moves on to work for the U.S. Attorney in the Eastern Division of North Carolina as the first Assistant U.S. Attorney and the Chief of the Criminal Division. So he, he moves up quite a bit. Later that year, Blackburn stood up against the Edgecombe County District Attorney, Frank Brown, who'd basically drawn up a manslaughter charge against a six-year-old Tarboro, North Carolina boy who had tragically killed his seven-year-old brother. So this is a horrible, highly emotional situation. Blackburn reviews the case law going all the way back to an 1895 North Carolina Supreme Court decision that declared, quote, an infant under seven years old cannot be indicted for punishment for any offense, end quote. And Jim says so in the press. He, so he's not publicly afraid to disagree with his peers in a really highly charged emotional situation, and he absolutely did the right thing for this family. Blackburn demonstrates that he's an astute judge of circumstance. He knew political opinions with him because Brown was an adult charging a six-year-old at all. Just two years later, Blackburn is engrossed in the Jeffrey McDonald case as lead prosecutor. Jim wins, Jeff loses, just in case you missed that. So after Jeff's conviction, riding with the McDonald High, Blackburn next takes on the state AFL-CIO president, Wilbur Hobby, and he's indicted for conspiracy and defrauding the U.S. government by illegally using money from this federal employment program. Now, Blackburn is directing a staff of 25, He's prosecuting everything from drug smuggling to murder cases to civil rights abuses. Howard Troxler, a reporter with the News and Observer, he writes that his Jim Blackburn's two great strengths were first, paying meticulous attention to detail, and second, being able to sell the case to the jury. So Troxler concludes that, quote, because of the McDonald case and other trials, Blackburn had developed a reputation as a meticulous lawyer one who tries to avoid being surprised in the courtroom, learning every fact and every detail of a case, end quote. Pretty impressive. Right, still the golden boy in 1981, Blackbird went on to get convictions in the Robert Ward case. This was for dumping polychlorinated biphenyl, or poisonous PCBs on long North Carolina highways. Hey, I like the environment clean, doesn't everybody? Good job, Jim. That September 1981, Blackburn left the U.S. Attorney's Office and begins a career in private practice. Now, at the time, the Charlotte Observer reports that Blackburn indicated that he was making a way for a Republican appointee, Sam Curran, who is the legislative assistant to the U.S. Senator Jesse Helms, who would be taking over his place. So he's an amenable guy to go along with that, don't you think? Okay, so Jim Blackburn, he is a team player, even when he plays for the other team, so keep that in mind. 
1983 was quite the year in North Carolina. The Lieutenant Governor, Jim C. Green, was indicted on robbery and conspiracy charges. And when Wake DA J. Randolph Riley took a leave of absence, the temporary DA, Colin Willoughby, appointed a special prosecutor to bring the case against Lieutenant Governor. And this was none other than James L. Blackburn. After deliberating less than three hours, the Lieutenant Governor was found innocent of all charges. The fate of the governor and politics in North Carolina, though, is not really the point here. What is important is the connection between Blackburn and Willoughby. Remember this. There'll be more on that later. So Blackburn now accepts employment with a large law firm, Smith, Helms, Mullis, and Moore, with 140 lawyers practicing out of Charlotte, Greensboro, and Raleigh, with a reputation that is reflected in Jim's acclaim as a trial lawyer. It seems like a really good fit. Now, Jim defended a high-profile case in 1985 when Senator John Jordan was charged with extortion, bribery, solicitation, and misconduct in office. This all stemmed over a dispute over a hydroelectric dam in Alamance County, North Carolina. Jordan owned land near the dam and was complaining that the owner of the dam, William H. Lee, was diverting water from his property. Jordan demands $60,000 from Lee, threatening him with unfavorable legislation if he doesn't comply. Jordan pleaded not guilty, with Blackburn filing to dismiss the, quote, vague and ambiguous charges, unquote, but to no avail. They lost that one. And then in August 1986, Jordan changes his plea to guilty, announces his resignation from the General Assembly, which was starting into an ethics probe. So Blackburn is later going to admit that it's really hard to give clients bad news, that there's no way out, especially if they are guilty of what they've been accused of. Case in point, Jim. Unfortunately, to get to the heart of the story here, things for Jim Blackburn skid off the rails big time in 1993 when he blew up his world. All right, this lawyer from the big shot law firm is arrested for embezzlement, forgery, fraud, Charges he pled guilty to, and these are all felonies. And this is the true crime story that we're going to delve into, Murder Bookies. Blackburn calls it his Flame Out, and that is the title of his book, and the same name we're going to give this minicast. We've given you some insights into Blackburn's background, his career, some ups and downs. So let's see how he just utterly destroys himself. What happened to the consumer advocate? What happened to the legal eagle who successfully convicted Jeff McDonald, the man so devoted to law and order? What the hell happened to the famous prosecutor turned defense attorney? Well, let's see as we discover by stepping back a page or two. So, Jim Backburn, he becomes this celebrity legal hero with the well-earned reputation as a brilliant attorney with the conviction of McDonald. So, at the beginning, Blackburn suggests that he has won this unwinnable case his framing, not ours. He says that everyone told him he was going to lose McDonald. He knew that the McDonald crime scene was contaminated by 10 or more MPs trampling through 544 Castle Drive that night of February 17, 1971. Preparing for the trial, Blackburn strategized that he would only call two of the MPs to the stand. Now, in his book, Jim explains that while he had 10 MPs to call from, he didn't want to use them all. Quote, 
I don't want to use them all. If we do, the other side will turn this trial into a farce, showing how screwed up the crime scene was. We don't want to do that. End quote. So since the prosecutor's job is to present his best case and get a conviction, that is Blackburn's motivation. Accentuate the positive, minimize or eliminate the negative. So he further admits that putting MP Ken Mike on the stand is risky. If you remember from our earlier episodes, Micah was the one who saw the woman with the floppy hat wearing the boots the night of the murder, which matched Jeff McDonald's description of the hippie intruders that he claims murdered his family. So it's Blackbird's contention that if they didn't call Micah, the defense is going to call him, but at a later time in the trial. Sooner was better than later. Calling Micah earlier in the trial would allow them to be kind of blasé about his testimony about seeing the woman. Quote, We don't have to agree that it was someone who was in the apartment that night. By the time the other testimony goes forth, the jury will have forgotten about him. End quote. So Blackburn's strategy wins the day. Micah is the second witness called to the stand in Jeff's trial. Now, to his credit, Blackburn recollects about some undisputed evidence as well, like the club used in killing Kimberly and Colette. Experts testified that it was once part of Kimberly's bed because the wood growth rings matched it perfectly. As it was used as a deadly weapon, pieces of it had sloughed off and were found in the master bedroom. Now, Jeff denied ever seeing it before, and he accused the hippies of bringing it with them to the house, which is impossible given the growth ring evidence. So, Jeff, that makes no sense at all, and Blackburn scores major points on this. Now, Blackburn also writes something that convinced him of McDonald's guilt, and of course it should convince all of us, was that Jeff had, quote, no wounds on either his arms or wrists, no ice pick wounds on his chest, none on his back, and his injuries required no stitches or bandages. He only had a collapsed lung on his right side, end quote. And this was a wound that Jim believed that he had inflicted upon himself. And the doctors at Womack Army Hospital saw scratches on him. That is all quoting directly from Jim Blackburn's book. Murder bookies, that is inaccurate. All right, in doing our research for the uh, Wilderness of Error episodes, we read the medical report on Jeff McDonald written that horrible night at the hospital. And contrary to what Blackburn wrote, the medical report indicates that Jeff had a large bruise on his upper arm and shoulder, a knife wound that entered one place next to another on his left bicep, plus several puncture wounds, cuts on his left hand and fingers, cuts into the web of his pointer finger and thumb, on his chest were four to five puncture wounds above his heart, these did not require stitches, on the right side of his chest, there was a three-quarter of an inch wide wound that slid down between his ribs, which collapsed the right lung, making it difficult to breathe. And on his abdomen was a three-inch long jagged tear that ran perpendicular to another knife slash, forming a V. Several puncture marks were scattered across the center of his stomach area. A Dr. Merrill Bronstein described these abdominal lacerations as gaping, so the fascia of the muscle was exposed and did require suturing. However, it was taped closed due to the immediate concern about the seriousness of the lung injury, which was going to require surgery. So it would have been stitched, 
but for the urgency of the breathing issue. Specifically, Jeff had no fingernail scratch marks, according to the CID reports and an interview with attending physician Dr. Siebert Johnson. This directly contradicts Blackburn. He did not present the facts in this book, and that annoys me to no end, Warner Bookies. Being self-serving does not help your case, Jim. It hurts your integrity and our perception of your character, which we are actively evaluating. Moving on, Jeff's convicted, and Blackburn is the triumphant legal hero. Of the McDonald case, Blackburn writes, quote, It changed my perception of who I am. Not a day has gone by since that summer that I haven't thought about the night almost 30 years ago when time stopped on a Fort Bragg military base. I am still asked almost daily about the case and interviewed every time McDonald files a new motion or has another hearing. And I have found that time has not taken away my memories of that night. Well, I may disagree a little bit with that last part, Jim, but what matters is his perception of himself was altered and shifted to the publicity, the notoriety of the McDonald verdict. We really, really don't need to rehash the entire McDonald trial. We're just trying to give you a few examples of how Jim Blackburn's strategizing works, how he thinks, how he presents his point of view, because when his own crimes are going to be exposed, Jim Blackburn will present his case to us, and we need to evaluate it having knowledge of his character. Two years after McDonald basking in success, he leaves government service, goes into private practice, winds up at Smith, Helms, Mullis, and Moore Law Firm, and this is a big switch for Jim. He has to redefine when, from previously racking up guilty verdicts to this new reality, air quotes, when, being defined as probation, getting life instead of the death penalty, and even a rarer not guilty verdict. So it's a big change here from that black and white slam dunk winning to more nuanced shades of gray outcome. You see, this is important because Blackburn is a victim of his own success. Yes, he's a, he's a victim. You see, the cards were stacked against him and McDonald, and Jim explains they were never supposed to win. Public sentiment was totally with Jeff McDonald, plus the case would never go to trial. Once the original prosecutor died of a heart attack, no one else could possibly try it. Then Blackburn the rookie is up at bat. He's never even tried a murder case before because it's rare for feds to actually try murder cases. And Jim claims that he had this overwhelming evidence on his side, and his potential witnesses were still alive and willing to testify. But the crime scene is a complete mess, so none of that is really going to matter. Jeff McDonald is presumed innocent, and the Army had dropped the case against him. Jeff has the best lawyers, expert witnesses, and if things became a little dicey, Jeff could always testify himself and blow the jury away with his good luck and charm. Green Beret doctor who lost his whole family so tragically. So Jim tells us that with all of this against him, the miracle happened, Jeff lost, Jim won, and now he is the stuff of legal legends. He'd won this enormous, important, media-powered case, and this becomes his narrative. It's amazing, he won, it's a miracle, and this is how he becomes a victim. But first, a few more memories from the trial that tells us a little bit more about how Jim Blackburn thinks. 
All right, there was a law clerk working for Blackburn, a guy named Kurtz, and he was assigned by Blackburn to write a memo that explored just how far the prosecution could go in denying the defense exculpatory evidence so as not to cross the legal mandate to give all such evidence over to the defense. This is called the Brady Doctrine. Now, this is important. It means Blackburn wanted to know how much evidence that might clear Jeff of the crime could the prosecution legally withhold? Legally withhold. Asking that question reveals a great deal about the games that this prosecutor is willing to play. And why? Why dance along the fine edge of Brady? Why even go there? And guys, this is not just theoretical, because we know that the prosecution did withhold evidence from the defense that they could have used. An example, there were black wool fibers that forensic had found at the scene that had no source in the McDonald home, and this backed Jeff's claim of intruders who Jeff said were black. Now, defense forensic witness John Thornton had no access to this evidence until after he testified. That's wrong, murder bookies. It does not mean Jeff is innocent but it does tip the scales towards unfair trial on my scorecard, and it reveals Blackburn's mindset that he'd go that far to win. Blackburn's prosecution also did a reenactment of the 48 ice pick stab wounds, which aligned with the holes in Jeff's blue pajama top, and with 21 stab wounds in Colette's poor injured body. And this was based on the work and testimony of chemist Shirley Green. This was a hugely significant point in Blackburn's retelling of the trial, but he left out one little part where the prosecution witness, FBI forensic expert Paul Stromba, said on the stand, quote, Well, you know, it could be other ways. There could be some other interpretations. Hole 17 might correlate really with number 3 instead of number 7, end quote. Now, this demonstration is basically speculation. It is not science, but it still made a huge impact on the jury, according to Blackburn, and it still resonates with Blackburn himself 20 years later. So it tells us how he's emphasizing the abbreviated part of the story. Interesting. What actually won the case, according to Blackburn? It's the blue fibers from Jeff's pajama top. Blackburn lists the number of instances that the fiber evidence did not jive with Jeff's story. If he struggled with assailants in the living room, why were these fibers not found there? And this is supposed to be where the top was torn. Shouldn't the mother load of fibers be found where the top was torn? The club we mentioned previously was covered in blue fibers, a club that Jeff said he never touched. Blue fibers were found in the master bedroom, a lot of them. They were found in five-year-old Kimmy's bed, and just below the master bedroom headboard where P.I.G. Pig was written in Colette's blood. So this was fairly devastating to the defense. Now, when Jeff took the stand, he failed to explain how any of these fibers got there. He said he just didn't know, and I can't explain that either. But what I do recall is that the crime scene was already contaminated and that Blackburn was already concerned about that because of the number of MPs that had trampled through the house in those early morning hours. 
That's why he only called the two MPs as witnesses, right? To mitigate that weakness in the story. Did all of those MPs track blue fibers through the apartment, shift them around? I don't know, but it does raise some reasonable bit doubt in my mind. But he wins the case. Did he do it on the merits? Well, we're going to go further into Blackburn's character, and we're going to look into how winning damaged him. In subsequent years, Jim Blackburn says he wanted to win for his clients. Well, that's part of the job description. But in hindsight, he says he developed an extreme expectation to try to please his clients, to present them with wins, successes, and court awards. So psychologically, he begins to personally suffer when delivering negative news, that they had no case or they had lost a lawsuit, that it hadn't gone their way. This is what leads to his downfall, his flame-out, as he calls it. This fall begins three years earlier, but the bell began tolling for him on January 13, 1993, when a very terse bank employee called his office at 8 a.m. and wanted to know why he had transferred $50,000 from one of the firm's trust accounts to one of his clients. This had happened right after Thanksgiving in 1992. Blackburn absolutely had authorized this transfer. The problem was he had absolutely no authority to do so. And while he went on assuring the bank clerk that everything is fine, everything is fine, he knew it was absolutely not fine. He called the firm administrator, Steve Blackwell, who absolutely refused to discuss it, saying he was too busy. Intuition and thought process working, Blackburn looked out the window to see if Steve Erb, a managing partner, was on the premise and quickly noted his distinctive car in the parking lot. So his sharp mind concludes that Erb is here to discuss the money transfer he had done. Now, a bit later, exactly what he thought was going to happen, Steve Erb and Dick Ellis, another senior partner, showed up to speak to Jim. They laid out what they knew very methodically. And they knew that Jim had set up a case file for a fictional legal matter that he had written at least 17 court orders to resolve this phantom case. He had made the down payment to his clients of $50,000. Now Blackburn denied, 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 denied as long as he could. And finally, Dick just called him out and said, quote, Jim, I just don't believe you. What I've read and what I have in my hands indicates to me that you have done wrong. Did you do these things? So the moment of truth had come, and Jim Blackburn finally admits that he had committed fraud, forgery, embezzlement, and lied about it. And this isn't the only time. So beginning back in 1990, Ben and Joyce Gardner, people Jim had known for a long time, he had done previous work for them on, you know, speeding tickets and whatnot, had come to him about a land dispute with a neighbor. If you haven't watched Fear Thy Neighbor on the ID channel, you need to to watch a couple episodes. But anyhow, they um, had purchased an empty lot on Lake Gaston in Virginia, and then the neighbors had put up a boathouse and a pier on what they believed was their land. And the discussion goes around and around. By the fall of 1991, Jim told them he had filed a lawsuit, but he had not. So as time goes by, with no actual lawsuit filed, the gardeners start demanding results, 
Jim continues ahead as if he was actually getting results. He drafts orders that look like the court issued them, with Blackburn forging various judges' signatures. He presented them to his clients as if the documents were real. And as they're seeking monetary damages, he told them the county court had awarded them $250,000. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, right? Oh, but that there was an appeal, and that, you know, delayed the settlement. None of this is real, by the way. And this brought Jim some time, very crafty, uh, but he next delays paying them longer because the firm needed the money, but it would be coming soon. And after many, many stressed-out phone calls demanding their money, Blackburn sends them the $50,000 as a down payment from the firm's trust account. He immediately feels better, the pressure's off, he'd accomplished something, only he actually had not, he'd committed a string of crimes, and this fact seemed to be completely eluding him. So Jim wrote that he he wished he had acted differently. He wished he had walked into Dick's office, told him the truth, but he believed that his survival as a lawyer was at stake, so he acted wrong kept quiet, and ultimately destroyed his legal career. And the why of all this really remains. So Blackburn leaves this this meeting with Steve and Dick, and he goes for a walk with Steve, and he asks him, hey, you know, do you, do you think I should resign? Seriously? Does he think it should resign? Do you really have much choice? Well, ultimately, he does resign before the firm can fire him. Next, he calls a lawyer to represent him. You cannot make this stuff up. Wade Smith, who is one of McDonald's defense attorneys, is a good friend of Blackburn's, and he's going to represent Jim. Good decision, Jim. At this point in the reading, the first thing that crosses my mind is, check into rehab. And I was really close. Doesn't that happen a lot with, you know, high-profile people doing bad things? They check into rehab? Well, anyway, Blackburn tells Wade Smith that he's done some bad things, but probably not criminal. <clears throat> Incorrect. So this is an indicator that there is something amiss when a career criminal lawyer doesn't recognize embezzlement, fraud, forgery in his own behavior. All right, I know he's going to jail. Clearly, he's not thinking well. Because if I can know this, he should know this. So he further spills his guts about some other crimes that he's committed. Another of his clients needed money right before Christmas, and Jim sends him $6,000 from the same trust account, leaving about $1,000 left from the original $57,000 that was in the account. What Jim fails to tell us in the book is that he deposited money into his personal accounts, too. During Jim's sentencing hearing, the prosecution would suggest he'd spent about $80,000 on a home renovation and used about $20,000 for an initiation fee into a social club. Very self-serving stuff, very manipulating that Blackburn neglects to mention this in this book. Note the character stuff here. Dilute criminality to make yourself look better. Wade Smith takes all of this in. And he immediately has Jim examined by a psychiatrist, one of the best in North Carolina, Jean Spaulding. According to Women in Duke University Medicine, where she'd earned her MD from, Dr. Jean Spaulding ran her private practice in Durham, 
and served as Duke's faculty clinical consultant in child psych for 13 years. Later, she was Duke's vice chancellor for health affairs, a member of the Binational Health Commission between the United States and Mexico, and makes many media appearances discussing psychiatric issues. And she becomes James Blackburn's psychiatrist. So Jean Spaulding and Blackburn evidently knew each other previously, which I think is a little bit sketchy. It does depend on the degree of that relationship, which I really can't speak to. What we do know is that Blackburn wrote of Dr. Spaulding's words to him, which were, quote, Look, we need to see if there's something wrong with you that might explain your recent behavior. I've known you too long, Jim, to think that you do these things without some explanation. These actions are bizarre. They're out of character for you. The truth is you might not be well, and I just don't know yet. End quote. So they begin to try to figure out what's wrong with Blackburn. Dr. Jean's concern is that his behavior was too calm, that he's in denial that he's committed serious crimes, and that this just doesn't register with Blackburn. She asks him if he's suicidal. He admits that it had crossed his mind, and her response leaves him chilled. She says, you need to know that if you should do something to yourself, there's a good chance that one of your children will likely do the same thing when they reach your age. It's not certain, but the odds go way up, and you should think about that. Wow. Blackburn never attempts suicide. Now, this tells me something significant. Something cognitive is functioning. He understood the point Dr. Spaulding is making, and he understood it fully. If he commits suicide, this could put his children in jeopardy in the future. Boom, he gets it immediately. So it appears that his thinking is working at this point. Now she goes on to prescribe him Prozac, lithium, and a battery of personality tests, drug talk screens, intense daily therapy, and eventually group therapy as well. It came out soon after that Blackburn had not only wired money to clients we've already mentioned, Jim had also sent the U.S. government another $22,000 on behalf of another client who owned money. He deposited money from clients into his personal checking account, then wrote checks to additional clients. In total, it comes out that he embezzled $234,054. A week after this all began, he checks into the psychiatric wing of Duke University Medical Center. I'd guessed rehab, they went with the psych ward. And, you know, just seems uh, they're they're looking for some way to mitigate his sins, but something does seem off with him. At the hospital, Blackburn describes his interest in seeing the newspaper because he wants to follow the media coverage of his story. He discovers they have a rating system where one means you never leave the ward, ever, and five means you can leave without supervision. He was rated at a three, so he could not leave without an escort. So when a group of smokers were permitted to go out, he was permitted to go with them, get a newspaper in the lobby, but under supervision. In the newspaper, there was a story about the state bar filing charges and covering his treatment in the psychiatric ward. And now, Jim understood why everyone wanted him there in the psych ward, isolated. As much as the story was upsetting, and as helpless as he might have felt, he couldn't answer any questions in lockup. 
So later that afternoon, Blackburn has his first visitor, Alan Head, the executive director of the State Bar Association, a former classmate of Jim's. Again, it must really be nice to have friends in high places who visit him there in the psych ward as the Bar Association is beginning disarmament procedures. The head State Bar Association comes visiting. So on July 14, 1993, the grand jury hands down a 12-count indictment charging James L. Blackburn with fabricating court documents, siphoning more than $234,000 from his former law firm. Wake DA Colin Willoughby said he would personally prosecute Blackburn and that he'd extend his personal friend no favors. Hmm. Remember Willoughby, who had appointed him to prosecute the lieutenant governor way back when? Yeah, his buddy Blackburn. Good to know he's not going to play favorites, however. Now, Jim faces up to 100 years in prison, but that's not going to happen because Jim decided to avoid a jury trial and plead guilty. He wanted to accept responsibility, do the right thing, make things right, and face the music. Back in April, he had taken the first steps, sending a sworn affidavit to the North Carolina State Bar, along with his law license, and admitted to all of his wrongdoings. Only Jim didn't actually want to do this. He had to be talked into it by Wade Smith and others. He had come around to it, and he did do it. But he writes he was, quote, not an easy client, and he was downright difficult, end quote. He was angry, paranoid, scared, embarrassed, but he did do it, if grudgingly. Blackburn delves into his therapy sessions with Dr. Spaulding, from the Rorschach ink block tests, to what was his childhood like, to what did he like about being an attorney, why was it important for him to be liked. It all came back to the McDonald case. I told you he's a victim. If he had lost, his life would have been totally different. By that time, he was identified and he was judged for himself based on McDonald. He came to believe that he could fix anything, do anything, and he wanted to be all things to all people, and that he was stretching himself to the breaking point and then snapped. Dr. Spaulding diagnosed him with having the worst case of depression she had ever seen, and his lawyer Wade Smith was thrilled and released a statement to the media. Jim is mentally ill. He did have the classic symptoms of depression, insomnia, lack of an appetite, fatigue, deriving no pleasure from life, experiencing sadness to thoughts of suicide. He even suffered a marked abnormal elevation of mood. For example, he'd be the life of the party and buying everyone drinks and then go in his office and stare out the window frozen, unable to work or he would lay down on the sofa just staring into space. So, disordered thinking. This is where thoughts kind of get stuck in quicksand, or they're so rapid that your mouth can't even keep up with your words. So this is Blackburn. He's, um, he's a guy who is always in motion, but he's having difficulty completing tasks. Focusing is really difficult. And he writes that Gene told him he's not psychotic, but that he had, quote, a walking-around nervous breakdown with psychotic features, like a break with reality, end quote. Another psychiatrist, Dr. Seymour Halleck, stated in the News and Observer that Blackburn knew what he was doing all along, but his judgment was impaired by, quote, an insidious depression. 
It's my impression that he did not believe the money was his to give away, but I found no evidence that he was consistently psychotic. Now, another revelation came out was Blackburn killing his mother. No, no, no. Not quite where you're thinking, murder bookies. See, he needed a continuance in court, and he couldn't think up another excuse, so he said his mother died. And to support this lie, he actually placed an obituary in the local paper, the News and Observer, who I keep talking about. Now, he finally tells his mom about this, because it was in the paper, and she took the news of her death quite well. She only wanted to know if he actually got the continuance. Uh, the thing is, I found the obituary, and it was in Wednesday's paper, not Sunday's like he's claimed. I have to wonder what else he misremembered. And again, it goes to character and judgment, because who would go so far as to put an obituary in the paper when one's mother didn't die just to get a day out of court? I mean, that's really calculating. I mean, that really is covering your tracks, isn't it? Plus, everyone who knows your mom is going to think she just died. All right. Well, in October 1993, Wade Smith found himself fighting to keep Jim from being committed to a mental institution for 60 days. Then problems had arisen two weeks prior when Blackburn, who was starting to feel better, and he's trying to save money, and he cuts back on his Prozac, which triggered all kinds of behavioral problems. So Smith is arguing to the court that Jim needs to be kept at home and keep seeing his current therapist. During this period, Dr. Spaulding told reporter Sarah Avery that, quote, at the time of his delusions, he believed everything he was doing was perfectly normal, end quote, but that Blackburn's doings were so far from normal, they were psychotic. Ultimately, Judge Henry Height ruled to allow Jim to continue therapy and not be committed, but more psychological tests were ordered. Yet in his book, Jim denies he was ever psychotic. Gene Spaulding did say he was psychotic to the press. And once again, is it memory? Or is he just painting a better picture than what reality truly was? Is it deliberate? I don't know. But I have to ask, how come nobody at the law firm ever noticed he was psychotic? Or depressed? Or his clients? Answer. Medical scans did show an abnormality in the part of Blackburn's brain where reasoning takes place, so a minor stroke had occurred within a five-year period. Could it have impacted his decisions? It is possible, but it's not absolutely certain that we can know. But this part of the brain is where we make judgments, think, and process. So we do know that James knew he was doing wrong on January 13, 1993. When he admitted his crimes, his delusions were shattered. His psychiatrist explained it like this, quote, He began slipping into depression gradually. His behavior changed incrementally so that family and friends noticed nothing drastically different about him, end quote. Now, his wife, Marsha Blackburn, did write to Judge Height that, quote, I have noticed marked changes in Jim. I can say now, and I can see it so clearly, that at the time the changes were gradual and sometimes subtle, end quote. All right, a fun fact. One of the judge's signatures that Jim Blackburn forged was Judge Franklin Dupree, the same judge who presided over the 1979 Jeffrey McDonald trial and who has denied McDonald numerous appeals over the decades. 
Judge Dupree passed away in 1995 at the age of 82. Now, moving ahead to December 1993, Dr. Spaulding is continuing to talk to reporter Sarah Avery that Blackburn, quote, was haunted by the McDonald trial. It became a very bizarre sort of way, tied to his identity. Part of him appreciated it, but on the other hand, it was a burden to find another success that was more powerful, end quote. Now, this frames James very sympathetically. As other cases came and went and other trials began and concluded, none were as sensational or as celebrated as McDonald, and yet everyone expected Blackburn to achieve the same results. I think Blackburn expected himself to achieve the same results. He especially sought superlative performances. Jim would later say in the article, quote, that people would say, If you can win that case, you can win my little case. So I was expected to do everything wonderfully. And and for years, that worked. He pulled it off. You know, he claims that he had a personality disorder where he was compelled to please people, only there really isn't such a thing. Now, informally, there's something called people-pleaser syndrome. People with low self-esteem, they can't say no. They're really generally miserable where they're trying to make everybody else happy. Often as children, they're just, you know, crushed by their parents. So there's no rebellion or anything. And they learn to survive by just conforming to what the adults want. So they grow up and neglect themselves and are anxious and insecure with no self-worth. They can, air quote, disappear. And they become passive, fearing rejection and disappointment. It doesn't exactly fit the Jim Blackburn I've read about, but they're are some little characteristics in there that kind of ping. Jim's work in private practice is going to shift from the courtroom where he thrives to playing a much more managerial role and working on lawsuits he'd agreed to file as favors to friends. And then he gets sucked back into McDonald's appeals, one based on the prosecution withholding evidence. And this time he finds he has to defend himself. Quote, says, I didn't think I'd done anything wrong, and all of a sudden I'm being interviewed by TV and radio folks about what I had been involved in, end quote, that he said at the time. But it's a good point. Blackburn also vows that he is going to pay back every cent of the $234,054, quote, because that's the only way I can feel good about myself again, end quote. Wow. That is really disappointing. So it's all about him. He's not going to make restitution to his friends at the law firm that he handily betrayed or his clients that he threw under the bus or maybe his family who are living a nightmare. It's all about him feeling good about himself again. And it tells me he's made terrific progress too. And I'm really glad to know that. It just sounds really self-centered. Could it be just the way the newspaper framed his comments? I am absolutely open to that possibility. It really sounds egoistic, the way that is phrased. Now, as it came time for sentencing, Wake District Prosecutor Colin Willoughby suggested that money may have been used for his personal benefit, such as that home renovation or the fee into the social club. Ouch! That flies into the face of his, I thought I was helping my clients. And Willoughby also states that Blackburn knew exactly what he was doing. He had no difficulty recalling for authorities the sums of money he took at various periods for whatever clients. 
Quoting the DA, white-collar crime is not a crime of ignorance. It's not a crime of provocation. It's not a crime of passion. It is the kind of crime that requires careful planning and execution, end quote. So the reckoning came on December 7, 1993, when Jim was sentenced to three years in prison for two felony convictions. Judge Height imposed another 10-year term on the remaining charges, but suspended the sentence for five years probation. Blackburn also has to pay back all of the money to his former law firm. And Jim writes that he hadn't particularly wanted to hear what the court was going to say. He'd have preferred to have it mailed to him. Yeah, he's really owning it here, isn't he? He also wanted to put tape over the mouths of those speaking during this process because it's really not quick like you see on TV. He, quote, wanted the electrical power to go out, something, anything. I didn't want to sit there and listen to all those accusations, end quote. Accusations? Buddy, these aren't accusations. All right, you did this. These are called facts. You pled guilty to them. Not quite owning it here. Uh, And this is in a book written in 2000, six years later. But he is patting himself on the back for listening to everyone giving him good advice to own it, to do the right thing, surrender your law license, plead guilty, but you're not really owning it. Sorry. Sorry, I am not buying the whole I'm earnest, I regret this, it's all my doing mantra because of his own statements and his words, where he undermines this whole heartfelt apology stuff. It's more like he's supposed to say this rather than he really went through a metamorphosis. Both his father and grandfather were preachers, so he's heard the, quote, I've had an epiphany sermon a gazillion times. So is he mouthing that? I'm sorry, I am suspicious of his motivation here as any good true crimer would be. And based on what he has said himself, Now, he was permitted to remain with his family over the holidays, but on January 3rd, 1994, Blackburn is handcuffed by the Wake County Sheriff Department and taken to prison. He remained at the Southern Correctional Institution at Troy, North Carolina for about a week, most spent in protective custody. And that's in in isolation for his own good, since he was a prosecutor who was putting folks in jail for a living. All right, most inmates took a lot longer to process out of Troy, and in flame out on exiting the short stay from Troy, this exchange with the correction officer took place. Correction officer, Blackburn, you sure do have a lot of friends. Well, well, what do you mean? Well, someone was always calling about you. They wanted to make sure you were taken care of. No doubt that speeded up things for you. Getting out of here in eight days is pretty fast. It usually takes about three weeks. End quote. So Blackburn didn't ask for any special treatment personally, something he's rather proud of during his stay in prison. Those outside that he knew did it for him, however, and he got special treatment anyway. He would spend the remainder of his sentence at Wake Correctional Center, a minimum security prison. And in prison, he also ran into the brother of Brantley Poole, Carpool. a former member of the real estate licensing board that Jim had once represented, who promised that he would look after Blackburn while they were at Wake. Flip side, does this mean that Jim now owns Carl? I mean, what's the prison culture about like that? I'm not sure. So, Jim Blackburn toughs out three to four months in prison like everyone else, right? No. He gets work release less than two weeks into the sentence. 
but how does this work release program function? So work release is offered to those who are sentenced to less than five years or longer-term convicts who've been reliable for many years and earned some trust. This is also the final step before parole. Blackburn is sentenced to three years, so he's eligible. There's no playing favorites here. Out of prison during the day, Jim went to work for his former mentor, Senator Robert Morgan's law office as an office administrator. So after being disbarred, felony convictions for embezzling a law firm, forging judges' signatures, let's let him work in a law firm again. That just seems sketchy to me, like letting the fox back into the hen house after he promises to be good. I mean, okay. But back in December, Judge Height granted Jim immediate work release. Judges can recommend this to the defense or the prosecutor if the defendant is not a danger to the public. And I certainly have to agree that Blackburn is not a threat of any kind, so this is totally legit. Senator Morgan said at the time that he agreed to employ Blackburn because he would benefit from his legal expertise. Told you Senator Morgan was going to be an important ally for Jim Blackburn. Now, Jim Blackburn could have actually started immediately if Senator Morgan's office had carried workman's comp insurance, but they didn't, so they had to set it up, and it is one of the conditions of work release. But anyway, he starts doing his work release. Now, in his book, Jim describes how Senator Morgan helped him to re-enter society, which is a really scary unknown for him. So how will the ex-con be welcomed back into genteel Riley society? To smooth the way, Senator Morgan took Blackburn to the courthouse, to the police station, to lunch at the city club, lawyers' offices, anywhere he could imagine. The only problem with this? Work release inmates are not allowed to leave the job site, according to W.K. Jones, the then superintendent of the Wake Correctional Center. But Jim Blackburn repeatedly left the work site, according to Jim Blackburn. But he didn't get any favoritism or anything. I tell you, it must be nice to be a good old boy, I guess. To his credit, while he is in prison, Jim endeavors to help his fellow inmates. He looks over letters to parole boards. He edits them as needed. He offers legal advice. He uses the legal resources at the Morgan Law Office to help out. He regularly answered questions about the McDonald case. So it made him something of a celebrity inmate. And to his credit, he also learns to say no when the news wasn't particularly good. If someone was hoping for parole or something, no, you're not going to get parole, sorry. You know, he says that he offered a little help and it, quote, turned a mean stare into a, hello, Mr. Blackburn, end quote. So he really was striving to become his best version of himself. And that's not easy for any of us. He showered alone for his own protection. He generally suffers the loneliness, the isolation, the loss of freedom that prison inflicts on prisoners. He writes that he grew stronger throughout, and he just wanted to survive to go home, humbled. And he turns to God, attending church services regularly. He writes that the Bible is the most read book in prison, not just read, but studied. And he says he must have reread the book of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount repeatedly until it kicked in, helping Jim to hold his head up helping him face what was coming, and enabled his survival through this terrible ordeal. And finally, on April 6, 1994, he was paroled, at least for five hours. 
Their bureaucracy was so eager to get him out, they miscalculated and they used the wrong date. So after Jim rejoiced that he made it, gave away his meager belongings to his prison friends, and returns home to Marcia, he discovers he has to go back to prison. How ungodly awful to taste freedom, be in your own house, sitting on your sofa again, your feet in your slippers, and have freedom snatched away once more. I just can't even imagine. And that was the quote we opened the show with. Jim chose to return of his own accord before the officials came to get him, and he endures another few weeks, and then was paroled for real on April 27, 1994, having served three and a half months in prison. Now, Jim moved forward. He worked as a host in a restaurant, and then a waiter, no easy job, and he accepted life without a law degree and a new social status. He worked hard. He found a new identity, a new inner sense of self, recovered his mental health, and he had to begin again. He says, quote, If people think 1993 had been a tragic year for me, they're wrong. The difficult times for me were before 1993. The worst thing that could have happened is if all this had not come to light and I had just kept on, end quote. Sounds like he's starting to get it, right? So where has he been in more recent years? Well, in 2018, the North Carolina Department of Public Safety Community Corrections, Raleigh, held their annual manager's meeting. Their keynote address was given by James L. Blackburn, now a successful motivational speaker who reflected back, quote, 1979 was good to be me, he told the attendees. And I was great until I wasn't. And somewhere along the way, I lost myself. I lost my moral compass. You could call it stupidity, arrogance, carelessness. I thought I could teach horses to fly. It cost me a lot. My career, my reputation, my freedom, and my income. My life was shattered, but it didn't end. End quote. Now that sounds more honest, more down-to-earth, more real than back in the day, Jim. He stopped proclaiming his victimhood. Good. He advised correction employees that as they supervise people on probation or parole, quote, let them know the world will fall in love with them if they're doing the very best they can and truly own their mistakes. Do not put a period where God puts a comma. A favorite phrase of Jim that's taken from George Burns and Gracie Allen comedian duo from back in the 40s and 50s. So he's gone on to be a successful motivational speaker and teacher of online seminars for both law enforcement and mental health professionals. Some of the courses he teaches are When Adversity Strikes and It Will, Stupid Has Consequences and So Does Hope, and a new one, Resilience and Well-Being in 2021. And he's overcome much, done well, and contributes to society once more. And that's quite moving and must be sadly applauded. And good for him. I would love to end it there, but I just can't. I found another quote doing this research. And December 19, 1993, right before he is sentenced to prison, facing an uncertain, bleak future, Jim Blackburn talked to reporter Sarah Avery. And he says, I'm sorry all this happened. The hardest thing for me is adjusting to the fact that my past life is gone and that I am no more what I was. It's been hard to realize that the life I had known for 20 years is gone, perhaps forever. Now that's truthful. The article continues to tell us what else Jim revealed that day. Now to paraphrase, he says he faces the future with hope, 
that hoped that he might rise above the disgrace he suffered and the ruin he's made of his career, that was marked by the stunning McDonald's success, that became, after all, the seed of his failures. If he is lucky, his prison sentence could be cut to three and a half months. If he's diligent, he might work his way out of financial ruin by parlaying disgrace into a new career, public speaking about mental illness that he contends caused his life to take a free fall. That was December 1993 murder book I believe he's sorry. I think he's being absolutely honest. That sweet life is gone. But we also do hear the victim again. My past life is gone. I'm a disgrace. My career is ruined. Winning McDonald ruined my life. Poor guy. But there is plan B. The deal was already made. Not even sentenced yet. And Blackburn reveals the plan to use his mental illness as a talking point, which is exactly what he's doing in his new career, according to his webpage today. That was fairly quick for a guy who had a competency hearing six weeks earlier, don't you think? Now, I am all for the power of positive thinking and embracing life, seeking forgiveness, figuring out what's next if you majorly screw up and face the consequences. I know how debilitating severe depression can be, and my sympathies go out in abundance to anybody suffering from mental illness. It is heartbreaking, and our society has a lot of maturing to do on how it regards mental illness. Tara and I speak on this often, but this just appears calculated for a guy who claims to gradually regain his fortitude and strength after hitting rock bottom during a part-time prison sentence. And he's a prophet. Who knew? Three and a half months in prison. Check. Work release. Check. So he's really only going to prison at night, then parole. Speaking on mental illness as a motivational speaker. Check. All spot on. He tells us this as he's being sentenced. Now, I did reach out to Mr. Blackburn, and I asked him to participate and or comment. And he responded and wanted to know who the Murder Show Book Club podcast was and never responded again. And I really wish he had spoken to us because I would have asked him about this, among other things. But, you know, we don't live in the world of the shoulds. We live in the world that exists. And he chose not to participate. Okay. But I really do wish him well, and I'm glad that he is back on track. And I wish him and his family all the best. And that is the true crime story of James L. Blackburn, the prosecutor of the Jeffrey McDonald case, turned felon and motivational speaker, the bonus spin-off minicast for you. And I am curious as to what you think about all this. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and let us know your thoughts. Jill and Tara at MurderShelfBookClub.com and leave us a five-star review if you can. It really is valuable. Trust your gut, lock your doors, and watch out for Red Mountain. We'll be back with our episode on The Lost Girls by Robert Coker when Tara returns. Thank you, Murder Bookies. Stay tuned. And thank you so much, Murder Bookies, for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or shoot us an email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pandora, Podbean, iHeartRadio, just about anywhere where you can find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a five-star review. We certainly love to see your feedback. And until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Stay safe. Stay healthy. 
cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy. Cause I love from head